Okay, good. So, uh, welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you got a seat next to you. Uh, well, I was going to say scoot down, but there aren't a whole lot of places to scoot. But Okay, no, no worries. Um, okay, so ladies and gentlemen, what we've got here this evening is a much easier letter than we've had for the last couple of weeks. Remember the last couple of weeks we had the Corinthians. And if you're just, you know, if you, if you, if you weren't at last week's or if you weren't at the week before that, uh, you know, you can check them out. You can check them out on my little website. They're, they're there for you. Uh, the Corinthians were extremely complicated and difficult letters. Because these poor people in Corinth, they had all these different issues and and they wanted Paul to help them. And so Paul tried to tackle all these different subjects and he tried to justify himself against his accusers. And so, so he had these letters to the Corinthians that are very complicated. Galatians is so much more simple. Galatians is my favorite letter. Okay? Um, and so what I'd like to do this evening, just to prepare you for Galatians, is uh, just to give you a little bit of background. All right? But the first thing we need to do to help us understand the letter to the Galatians, I think you'll find this interesting. A little bit of the background, not so much on the place, right? This region of Turkey is called Galatia. Right? This blob right here, that's Turkey. Okay? This region of Turkey is all called Galatia. Uh, but let's stop and ask ourselves, who are the Galatians? And this is kind of interesting. The Galatians are a nomadic Celtic people. Right? And they have a fascinating history. The Galatians started their nomadic journey in Asia, right? We believe it was uh, Mongolia. And they start traveling westward, they start settling, and we've got some of their settlements recorded on our, map of, our, on our maps of Europe. They, they, they left a trail of where they went, okay? Uh, so they, they, they settled in, uh, in what we now call Poland, right? They settled in what we now call Ukraine, and there is a region of Poland and a region of Ukraine that's called Galatia, right? It's a sort of south, uh, southeast Poland. And then they moved on, and they settled in this part of Turkey right here, okay? This uh, sort of central, northern, eastern corner of Turkey, which we call Galatia, which is, of course, where Paul was writing to. And just for, as an FYI, they settled in this area about the 3rd century B.C. Right? So they've been in this area for about 300 years. And then the Galatians, they continued traveling west, and they uh, settled in uh, the, the northwest corner of Spain. Anybody knows about Spain? There's a little region of Spain, four square to the Atlantic, in the northwest, and it's called... Galicia, right? And if you go there and you ask them, you know, do you speak Spanish? Hablas Espanol? They'll look at you funny and they have their own language. They call it Gallego, right? Tu falas Gallego? And they have a totally different language. And from Galicia, they went up north and they settled in France, which the Romans called Gaul, all right? And then from France, they crossed over the English Channel and they settled in the British Isles in what we call Wales, and Wales in Latin is Gales, right? And then from there they crossed over and they couldn't go any further and they settled in Ireland where they speak Gaelic. So what we have here is St. Paul's letter to the Irish. 
And it stands to reason, if you keep that in mind, this is the most cantankerous, blunt, Irish, argumentative, in-your-face of all of Paul's letters. All right? Um, this, is my, this is my favorite letter. You know, Paul, he has this really blunt words in it. You stupid Galatians, he says to them. Okay? Very, very blunt. And this is the first letter for which we're really not sure of the date. All right? And here's why we don't know the date. We don't know which Galatians he was writing to. Now, this region of Galatia stretches up north here to Bithynia, stretches down south here to Pisidia, and we don't know which Galatians uh, he's writing to because he passed through the area twice. In his first missionary journey, all right, if you take a look at your little, uh, your little book, you can see his first missionary journey, and he passed through Galatia, okay, he went to Derby and Lystra and Iconium, right? And then, and that was around uh, 48, 49 AD, his first missionary journey. And then, in his third missionary journey, he passes through the area again, right? And he says he's going to go up north. He says he's going to go up to Bithynia. The fact is, we don't know which of these two times Paul wrote. We don't know which of these two times Paul wrote. If Paul wrote it during his first missionary journey then Galatians becomes the oldest letter in the Bible, in the New Testament, right? With, with a date of 48-49 A.D. But if Paul wrote it in the second, uh, third missionary journey, all right, then the, the date of Galatians is 57-58 A.D., something like that. And what we tend to say about Galatians is that it was written on the third missionary journey, on the second pass-through of Galatia. Why do we say that chances are he was writing these folks up here Why do we say that it was the 57-58 A.D. rather than the 48-49 A.D. dating? And the reason is because Paul's letter to the Galatians is so similar to Paul's letter to the Romans, it's almost like a rough draft and a final copy. And, and, And they were written sequentially. Galatians and Romans. So that's where we get this, uh, that's where we get our, our, our dates of the Galatians. Interesting little history of the Galatian people. Um, and an interesting little question mark, you know, is this the oldest letter in the Bible or isn't it? Okay, so let's take a look now about the background of this letter. All right? What's going on with the Galatians? Why did Paul write a letter to the Galatians? Okay, the whole trouble in Paul's letter to the Galatians has to do with Gentile converts to the faith. That's what this is all about. Gentile converts to the faith. Jesus sends out his twelve apostles. He sends them out to preach. He sends them out to teach. He says, go first to the children of the house of Israel. And nobody talks to the Gentiles, not until Paul comes along. Paul's the one who starts going to the Gentiles. So what we've got here is this ancient church that has all these Jewish converts. And they've accepted Jesus as their Messiah, right? But they're still doing all the same old things that they used to do under Judaism. They're still keeping Sabbath rest. They're still keeping kosher dietary laws. Uh, They're still doing all the things of the law of Moses, and they've kind of just tacked on Jesus as as, as their Messiah, because it's not really clear at this time, when you go back to 47, 48 AD, it's not entirely clear that we've, got, we've now got two different religions. Okay? You've got these Jewish converts. They're thinking, well, this is, this is the path of the children of Israel. 
And all the other children of Israel, they just haven't signed on yet. But this is the path of the children of Israel. And the Gentile converts, they sign on. We're like the wild branch grafted onto the good vine. We're also in the inheritance of the children of Israel. Time yet would pass before it would, people would begin to realize, we've got two different faiths here. Okay? So they're still doing all the, of the uh, kosher dietary laws. And here comes the question now. All right? When a Gentile converts... Does he have to follow all of the Jewish uh, dietary laws and all those kosher laws and all those things, or not? Does he have to keep kosher? Can he have ham and cheese on rye, or not? And if you think that's bad, see, here, here, here was the real stickler. What's the sign of the Jewish covenant on a man? Okay, so if you are a Gentile, and you're thinking about taking on this new way in Jesus Christ, you might think twice. You just might postpone your baptism if you think that you have to carry on you know, all these Jewish, uh, Jewish laws. Okay? So before we can go any further, what we need to do is we need to talk about the law. Because all throughout Paul, he refers to the law. I mean, he has this very specific meaning for this. He's talking about the law of Moses. He's talking about the law on Mount Sinai. He's talking about the divinely revealed regulations from the Torah. All right? The Hebrew word Torah means revealed instruction. First five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right? And among other things, you know, all boys had to be circumcised. Everybody had to follow the Sabbath day of rest. There's a host of dietary requirements. You can't have pigs. Uh, uh, you can't have uh, any kind of sea creatures unless they, uh, uh, unless without, without fins or scales, which means you can't have any shrimp, can't have any lobster, any of those fun things. The only animals that you can eat are animals that have split hooves and that chew their cud. If they have either a split hoof or they chew their cud, but not both, you can't have them. Okay? They're considered to be unclean. You have to have meat that's properly slaughtered, and the blood has to be fully drained before you can eat it, and you can't have meat and dairy together, um, which means that uh, cheeseburgers are out, okay? and you can't have pigs, which means bacon cheeseburgers are definitely out. Okay? Do they have to keep the law? Do they have to keep the law? Well, first of all, why do the Jews keep the law? Why do the Jewish people keep the law? The Jewish people kept the law as a sign that they are the chosen people. That's why the Jewish people kept the law. Their God had chosen Israel from all the nations, and they showed the world that they were set apart right, by adhering to the law. It wasn't a way of earning salvation. Uh, it was just a way of keeping the law, keeping the covenant that God established with Moses. So here's a very, very early question. And there was a council, a church council, Jerusalem, sometimes called the Council of Jerusalem, that dealt directly with this question. Um, who, who knows what a church council is? Who does not know what a church council is? Okay, who's heard of Vatican II? Vatican I. Okay, those are church councils. Uh, starting with Constantinople, uh, Ephesus, um, the, the Five Lateran Councils, the Council of Orange, the Council of Lyon, um, uh, the, the Council of Trent, the, the Vatican Councils. When the church has a big question, and they don't quite know what to do, all the bishops of the world, they gather together, they debate it out. right? And they pray for guidance of the Holy Spirit, and they conclude what they can conclude, and they leave open what they're not sure of, and they call these church councils. All right? That's what Vatican II was. Well, the first 
council, uh, strictly speaking, was, was Constantinople. But here in the New Testament, all the bishops, they get together in Jerusalem to discuss this question. Sometimes it's called the Council of Jerusalem. And if you're curious to read more about it, it's in uh, the Acts of the Apostles. I'll just read you very briefly. Okay, this is from Acts chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, reporting the conversion of the Gentiles. And they gave great joy to all the brethren. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers also belonged to the party of the Pharisees that rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter arose and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made the choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving us the Holy Spirit just as just to them just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them. I'm going to skip right down to, to the end here. My judgment, therefore, is we don't trouble those Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to, we should write to them to abstain from the pollutions of idols, from unchastity, from, strength, from, from what is strangled, and from blood. From these generations, Moses has had in every city those who preach him for he is read in every Sabbath in all the synagogues. Okay, so that's basically what they concluded. What are these Gentile uh, converts down here in Jerusalem supposed to do? Um, the Council of Jerusalem uh, said that they had to stay away from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from strangled animals, and from promiscuity. Okay, that's all they had to do. They didn't have to do any of the other Jewish dietary laws. You'd think that would settle the issue, right? Well, it didn't. Okay, it didn't. But let me go off, before I get to how it didn't, let me go off on a tiny little tangent here. What we've got here, what I just read to you, this Council of Jerusalem, we've got the church's first rule. Right? The church's first rule. It's like the church's first canon. Okay? They don't have to follow the law of Moses, but they have to do these four things. Okay? And sometimes you hear that at Mass, avoid the meat of uh, animals that have been strangled or animals that have been sacrificed to idols. And then you're cutting into your juicy steak, and you think to yourself, well, was this sacrificed to an idol? Okay, was this animal killed by, was this animal strangled? Um, does this matter to any of us? No. But it's in the Bible. Why doesn't it matter to any of us? Because what you're seeing here is the church's first local rule. It applied to the church in Syria and the church in Cilicia. It didn't apply anywhere else. Why did it apply to the church in Syria and the church in Cilicia? Because that's where most of the Jewish converts were. Okay? They're trying not to scandalize people that, you know, who, who come in from Gentile religion and, and then they disregard all these laws of Moses that they've been keeping over since their childhood. They're trying not to scandalize these poor people. So they set up a little local rule and the church has been making local rules ever since. And if you understand why the rule is in place, it doesn't bother you. And it helps sometimes to remember that when the church writes up a rule... It's always doing it for a reason, and sometimes the rule doesn't apply universally. Okay, like you, you know, if you're in North Dakota, the 15th of August is a holy day of obligation. 
But if you cross over into Manitoba, you're off the hook. Because for some funny reason, the Canadians have like no holy days of obligation. Okay? I can wager a guess as to why they did that, but the fact is, some people get scandalized. They say, okay, it's a sin for me if I live on this side of the border, but not on that side of the border. Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Why is that? Why is that? Well, they, they make these they make these uh, they make these rules, okay, as more as a way to to try to keep order in, in a local area. And by following these these rules, it's it's like we're giving honor to God by obeying the authority that He gave the church, okay. Um, so here, it's just an interesting little side note there. Uh, those are the, the the four the four areas. You'd think that would settle the matter, but it didn't. Okay. So we're back now to our problem in Galatia. And what the problem is, is with what Paul calls Judaizers. All right? These are Jewish Christian converts. And the trouble is they were giving a hard time to the Gentile converts. That's what was going on. That's what led Paul to, uh, to, to, to write uh, his, his letter to the Galatians. Okay? Um, interestingly now, in, just a little, little side note. Why do you think it is that Jewish Christians were giving the Gentile converts a hard time. Why do you think it is that Jewish Christians were giving the Gentile converts a hard time? Well, you could speculate about it. You could say maybe they have a full understanding of what Jesus did on the cross for us. You could say maybe all these rules, they were so entrenched in them, they, they couldn't let it go. But there's a much more probable reason okay, as to what was going on. The probable reason is they were afraid of persecution. Who was persecuting the Christians at this time? The Romans? Not yet. Who was persecuting the Christians at this time? The Jews. Just like Paul himself did. So why do you think it is that they were so insistent on keeping all these external practices of Judaism? Well, because if you're keeping all the external practices of Judaism, you're off the hook, right? Okay, to every external to every external uh, observer, you look just you look just like you look just like a Jew. Okay, and this got them off the hook. And and the Gentile converts, you know, they were ready to accept external practices. They had rituals from their religions that was easy to understand. They were fully disposed by their previous you know superstitions to to, to accept the, the carry the execution of uh, external rituals. Okay, so there's your background to, to Galatians. It's the trouble with. The keeping of the Mosaic Law. Right? Now, my spirituality, my theme for Galatians, as you'll find on your little syllabus, let God be in control. I believe that's a theme for the letter. Let God be in control. Okay? Um, and here's what's happening. Let's, let's, take a look at, uh, let's take a look at the content. Let's take a look at the content of this letter. Both Paul and the Gospel, they're under attack. Right? And the things they were saying against Paul, so here's Paul, so they're attacking him. And it's interesting, the things they were saying against Paul, they're the same things people have been saying against Paul in his own time, as you've heard me say in previous weeks, the same things some people are still saying against Paul today. They're saying, Paul's not a real apostle, okay? He's just a disciple of the apostles. He wasn't one of the twelve. Jesus didn't call him when he was alive. He never lived with Jesus. Therefore, Paul can't be a real apostle. And they were saying he's deliberately changing Jesus' teaching and he's preaching to the Gentiles so that they don't have to follow the Mosaic Law and he's just doing this to curry their favor. Okay? And, you know, he, he just... This is how they ended up attacking him. Okay? So here's Paul. He writes this letter. And he's writing with indignation 
against those who are trying to undermine his efforts, okay, and against those who are so easily giving up their faith. He's mad at those who are accusing him. He's mad at the Galatians. So he says, you stupid Galatians, could you, how, how could you possibly abandon your, your, your faith so quickly? And his, and his main message in Galatians is what we're going to unpack here, okay? Is that justification doesn't come from keeping the law. Justification comes from faith. That's the main message of Galatians. The main message of Galatians, justification comes from faith. It doesn't come from keeping the law. And now you know what I mean by law, right? Right? Now let's talk about what I mean by justification. Right? What is justification? What does Paul mean by it? What do, mean, what do we mean by it? Justification means being on good terms with God. Do you want to be on good terms with God? Yes, just nod. Okay? So do I. So do I. Justification means being on good terms with God. And this justification comes from faith. All right? Now, the Judaizers, the, these, Jewish, uh, these Jewish Christians, they said, no, 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 Christ alone isn't enough. You also need the law. Now, here's where Paul launches off. Three main parts of this letter. Chapters 1 and 2. Paul defends himself against his Jews. Chapter 3 and 4. Explain what he means by justification by faith. Chapter 5 and 6 applies it to ordinary life. And there's some great little reflections in, in chapter 5 and 6. It's, 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 uh, it's fantastic spiritual reading. Okay? So uh, what does it mean to be justified by faith? What does it mean to be justified by faith? Well, it's more than just a, an assent to... Uh, a faith is more than just an assent to a set of truths. Faith is a gift. I've talked about this before in previous, in, in a couple, couple weeks ago. Faith is a gift. It's a supernatural infused virtue whereby you can believe and trust and abandon to God just on the authority that God himself has said something. Do we have that capacity naturally? No. What's our natural capacity? What's our natural disposition? Skepticism, doubt, fear, uh, hesitancy... What does faith do? Absolutely, completely trusts. Okay, So faith is a gift. So for Paul, it's more than just an intellectual assent to a gift of, 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 of truth. It is an intellectual assent. Okay? It's, 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 uh, this, is what Paul, this is what Paul ultimately means by faith. It's a total surrender to Christ. And he says this is what justifies somebody. A total surrender to Christ. If, if, uh, if God speaks the truth, we assent to it, okay, intellectually, intellectual assent. Okay? You can look these up and you can see them for yourself. If he makes a promise, okay, we're confident in it. If he gives a command, we obey it. Okay? Confident dependence on God and total surrender to him, done in love. This is what faith means. This is what justifies us in God's sight. Okay? None of this is something we do on our own. Okay? It's our response to God's grace. And it's inseparable from baptism. Okay? So now, let's, with, with that as a background, let's take a look at some select passages from the letter. Okay? Um, all right. I read from Galatians, very beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Now that might not like, seem like very much to you. 
seem like very much to you, but that's a chilly beginning. That's a very cold and chilly beginning. In every other letter, Paul says, I give thanks to God for all that you do, and your esteemed faith is known the world over, and I give thanks to God for your gracious example. No words of praise here. Okay? No gratitude to God for their good work. He skips straight to that, and he goes straight to the statement that he is an apostle sent by God. So you see what he's doing already right at the beginning. He's, a, he's fighting back against these people who says he's not a real apostle. And as I said before in previous classes, let me just repeat this very briefly. We've got to understand what apostle means in the New Testament. Okay? It comes from the Greek word apostolos, okay? which means one who is sent. An apostle is someone who is personally sent by Christ, who's a witness to the resurrection. And in the New Testament, we've got as many as 16 apostles. 16. We've got the original 12. And then we've got Matthias. right? And then we've got Barnabas. And then we've got Paul. And then we've got what might be another James, another third James. Okay. So even in the New Testament, we've already got more than, 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 just, these, uh, more than just these 12 apostles. And Paul's saying right here, listen, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, um, and, and he establishes that right off the beginning. Okay. And the next thing he does, he attacks these people that were saying, these Judaizers. I'm going to read from chapters, uh, verses uh, 6 to 10. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, turning it into a different gospel. Not that there is a different gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As I've said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you've received, let him be accursed. Okay? So what he's saying is these Judaizers, they're actually preaching a completely different gospel. Is Christ alone enough or isn't he? Is Christ alone enough or isn't he? So what, what he's saying here is, if Christ alone isn't enough, if you keep thinking you're justified in God's sight by keeping the law of Moses, well then why did Jesus have to die? Why did bother, God bother sending his son? And then these people who say he's trying to curry people's favor, he throws this little line in. Am I seeking the favor of men or am I seeking the favor of God? He just, he's just ticked off 90% of the church in Galatia for having said that. Okay? Am I trying to seek the favor of men or am I trying to seek the favor of God? If I'm trying to please men, I am not a servant of Christ. Which, by the way, is a pretty good little rule to live by. Okay? So, uh, who, who's, he, who's he trying to please? He establishes himself as an apostle. He's defending himself. And he says, well, I'm not trying to please anybody here. Trust me. Okay? Um, I'm going to give you one tiny little more passage here before we take a, a brief little break. Just, as, as, just on the line of Paul defending himself. I, I'm reading from chapter 2, verses uh, 1 and 2, and 7 to 9. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up by revelation. And I laid before them, but privately before those who were of repute, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, lest somehow I be running or had run in vain. But on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted for, with the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for the mission to the circumcised worked through me also for the Gentiles, and when they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas, Cephas is Peter, and John, who were reputed to be the pillars of the church, gave, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles just as they did to the circumcised. Well, the only thing they would have us remember is to remember the poor, the very one thing I was very eager to do. Okay? So here's Paul, he's defending himself, a little tiny uh, 
um, autobiographical segment. And he says he goes to the pillars of the church, these very people who are accusing him of not being a real apostle. He goes to Peter, he goes to James, he goes to John. And those same people say, Paul, you're right on the money. Okay? You're preaching. You're preaching the right message. He has their full. He has their full blessing. Their full approval. So that's just the very beginning of the letter. That's kind of just by way of introduction. Five minute break. Okay. Then we'll continue with the rest of it.